Welcome to Trying Days of the Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. Chris recently spoke with Whitney Webb, professional writer, researcher, and journalist since 2016. This is the second half of their conversation. Like I said, do you have a spreadsheet <laughs> to keep all this straight? I mean, goodness gracious me. Yeah, the book's going to be quite long. Right. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot to cover. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I've always found that, you know, blackmail is, is a very interesting thing because, you know, you've got the blackmailer and you've got the blackmailee, you know, and, and a lot of times the, the blackmailer thinks that they're in charge, but, you know, um, it's it's not always uh, that easy. Uh, have you read uh, uh, Rockefeller Medicine Man? No, is this about the, uh, I believe it's called the Flexner Report? Yeah, I'm familiar with that, report, yeah, but, yeah, but I haven't it, read the it, book. It's no. written by a, a professor at uh, Berkeley, and, and it's, it, it's already public domain. And it, it, it's quite fascinating about the um, falseness that a lot of the Western medicine is, is built upon. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and, how they, and how they gathered uh, that power. But then I, I want to get into, you know, What's your relationship with mainstream media? I mean, are, are they trying to steal your stuff? They, you know, they poaching your stuff. Yeah, I've had that happen. <laughs> are, are they giving you credit? Are no. you? So, um, yeah, I have had stories poached. It mostly happened last year. Uh, I had a story poached by the Washington Post and also by The Intercept. Um, I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, in terms of mainstream, I did have some mainstream interest in my Epstein research. I was actually contacted by a Ghislaine Maxwell documentary to appear in that. However, it was bought, uh, the rights to it were bought by NBC News. And then I was dropped uh, immediately <laughs> uh, from the list of researchers. I was told by the producer that they were um, very interested in covering the intelligence ties. They, uh, I guess, decided not to cover them. Uh, however, I was contacted by a uh, film company that's producing an Epstein documentary for Hulu. And as of right now, I'll be filming that um, the first week of August. Uh, and they're very interested in the, not just the intelligence ties, uh, but the other aspects of uh, the book and my work on Epstein regarding uh, organized crime intelligence, Operation Underworld, um, the blackmail of J. Edgar Hoover, my, uh, Mayor Lansky, and a lot of these other um, act, act, you know, activities that gave rise to Epstein. They really want to provide that context. They previously the did- Hotel! Yeah, well, they previously did a feature-length documentary on Roy Cohn specifically. They said that my research connected a lot of dots that had been missing for them when they filmed that documentary. So I very much hope they don't um, drop, drop me like a hot potato at the last second, like this other documentary did. But, you know, uh, I sort of have to uh, put myself out there in these situations sometimes in the hopes that this information can reach a wider audience. Sometimes it's sticky, sometimes it works out. Regarding my stories having been poached in the past, so um, I wrote a series about the 2001 anthrax attacks and how a lot of the main players in those attacks ended up being directly involved in COVID-19 policy under the Trump administration. One of them, Robert Cadillac, having done a simulation about a novel, novel coronavirus outbreak taking place and originating in China uh, on behalf of the U.S. government uh, in 2019, and then he would later was in charge completely of the US, uh, U.S.'s entire COVID-19 policy for HHS under Trump. Um, and of course, uh, his ties 
Uh, to the anthrax attacks I discuss in depth in the three part of my uh, part three of my engineering contagion series. Uh, when the second part of that series came out about a company called Emergent Biosolutions, previously known as Bioport, to which Cadillac had numerous conflicts of interest, I mentioned at the end of that article that I would be covering uh, Robert Cadillac and his conflicts of interest with that company uh, in the paragraph that was probably uh, the last paragraph that was probably a mistake. Um, that article was published. Uh, in a press release by the Institute for Public Accuracy, uh, thanks to uh, journalist Sam Husseini. Sam Husseini later gets a call from a Washington Post journalist asking about Robert Cadlick, uh, refuses to talk to me, uh, but wants more information about the story. Um, and then a week before my article on Robert Cadlick comes out, that same Washington Post reporter, along with two other reporters, um, authored uh, a piece uh, about uh, one of the main conflicts of interest I was going to report on. Of course, nothing about the anthrax attacks in there, um, a very limited hangout version, but definitely uh, poached that story. I think that's quite clear. Um, subsequently, I published a piece on uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, documents that have come from the National Security Commission on AI, uh, which is chaired by former head of Google, Eric Schmidt, uh, and is basically uh, Silicon Valley, the intelligence community and the military deciding how to weaponize AI, AI against the American people for a surveillance agenda um, in order to be the global military and economic leader um, of AI into the foreseeable future as a way to quote unquote beat China. Um, Naomi Klein of The Intercept subsequently took um, these FOA documents that I hunted for like in a needle in a haystack sort of situation um, and published them without crediting me. And also then uh, one once again, offered a very limited hangout interpretation of those documents, keeping it as, you know, oh, surveillance is bad um, and not talking about, you know, really the intelligence ties or a lot of the other agendas at play there. You know, the type of people that are employed in those high paying mainstream positions today uh, don't really have a lot of uh, integrity or, or uh, creativity uh, more often than not, or even originality. They just tend to be stenographers uh, for either corporate America or the government. Uh, so they have to uh, poach information from other people uh, that actually have uh, some, some ability uh, in order to make up for uh, their lack of that. So, uh, that, you know, I, I don't want to put all mainstream reporters in the same boat, but more often than not, in order to uh, ascend in that career path these days, you sort of have to uh, play ball with certain agendas and not cover certain pieces of information or certain pieces um, of the story, even when it's very clear that, uh, you know, there's an imperative to do so. You have to listen to your editors. What are the hopes and fears that Whitney Webb has today? Okay, so I am worried that um, there is a window where there will be an attempt uh, at, you know, mass censorship of information online, uh, essentially uh, a modern day book burning, but the, uh, the virtual version, as it were. Since I've uh, been writing the book, I've made a lot of efforts to make PDFs of websites. I noticed that several were already taken down, oh, yeah. uh, including a lot of the original a documentation of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, Christine Maxwell, her involvement in the Homeland Security software company, Kiliad, uh, that later contracted to DHS and a lot of federal agencies after 9-11. Uh, a lot of that information has been entirely eliminated from the internet, probably because 
Uh, the, she uh, directly founded it with an active uh, chief information officer of the CIA back in the late 90s. And that same CIA official was uh, later involved with the uh, creation of Palantir, uh, which now manages all of the COVID-19 health data uh, for both the U.S. and the U.K. and contracts to all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. And of course, Peter Thiel, who runs that company, doesn't really uh, want that sort of connection, uh, you know, to the Maxwell sisters to really be aired out, I think. So they've obviously made it an effort to take information online. Uh, we've seen this, of course, with 9-11 truth related research and original documentation of, of that event. Uh, a lot of that has been scrubbed from places like YouTube um, and in other places in an effort to uh, make that information as inaccessible as possible. Um, so there, you know, this sort of book burning has already been taking place. Uh, I am worried it will accelerate because a lot of different initiatives have been announced by not just the U.S. government, uh, but these global entities, as it were, um, like the World Economic Forum's uh, Partnership Against Cybercrime, uh, which includes the direct involvement of the U.S. Department of Justice and their equivalent in, in the U.K. and Israel, um, all seeking to essentially clamp down uh, on the free flow of information. They define people that spread, quote unquote, disinformation as cyber criminals. Uh, we recently saw the Biden Biden's uh, domestic terror strategy la label people who spread disinformation as potentially being uh, domestic terror extremists and things like this. So there is an effort to criminalize information the powers that be don't want out there. Um, and of course, this can only advance if people allow it. My concern is that there will be some sort of um, event that will tr be used to manufacture consent for these policies among the general public. Um, if people remember back to 2001, uh, the legislation, uh, for example, like the Patriot Act, authored before 9-11, the uh, framework for what would become the Department of Homeland Security uh, was introduced also in early 2001, and the Congress went nowhere because people were like, we don't need a new intelligence agency, and then 9-11 happens, and there's this demand uh, for what would become uh, DHS. Uh, similarly, with the release of these frameworks and, and these different calls for things, there hasn't been, you know, a, a massive uh, outcry uh, for that policy. It's essentially either being ignored or opposed by large segments of the American public. Um, and if history is any indication, they need some sort of event to try and get this pushed through. Um, and it's no coincidence, I think, that Joe Biden is currently president while this is taking place. Because if you remember back to the Oklahoma City bombing, of which there is considerable evidence um, that that was a false flag, um, the domestic terror legislation introduced afterwards was introduced in the Senate by Joe Biden, and Biden's version called for the removal of habeas corpus, posse comitatus. It wanted to give the president uh, exclusive power to name who is a terrorist and who isn't, um, among uh, other extreme Orwellian powers that you know, have uh, would easily transform the U.S. into a dictatorship. And now we have Biden uh, leading the U.S. government uh, at, at this crucial point in time when they've made this very overt pivot to domestic terrorism after the uh, multi-decade war on terror. Uh, there's now um, a new uh, war they're attempting to launch. Of course, this can only advance if we allow it. So, you know, those are my concerns. Uh, my hope is that people start to wake up to this at the uh, success of um, independent media uh, takes hold to a great, great enough extent to uh, encourage critical thinking and opposition to these policies. 
um, on a wider level because it's become quite clear that, that this isn't an event like 9-11, that what we have essentially been living uh, the past year and a half is essentially a slow motion perpetual 9-11 uh, that doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Uh, and you know, if there was ever a time to stand up, uh, against uh, these, uh, you know, the powers that be, what is really, as we've been discussing, this nexus between organized crime and intelligence that hasn't been accountable uh, for numerous decades has continued to grow in its influence and fester um, and commit crimes uh, in every sector of the economy all over the world. And domestically, you know, we're living the consequences of that, and that can only go on so far um, until it, you know, it reaches a breaking point. And I would argue that breaking point is here. Uh, so my hope is that people realize that and, you know, do what needs to be done in order to stop, you know, what is really um, a cancer uh, masquerading as the United States government um, from, you know, taking uh, all of our freedom away, essentially. Right. Well, I have, I have great hope that their plans are not going to come to complete fruition. And I've been told on certain things that this isn't going to happen. You, you can't do that. And we've gone ahead and done it. And I, I really think that, you know, there are way more of us than there are of them. And I do think that we can push it beyond what they think. And, and I think good things are going to happen. I, just to circle back a little bit, NXIM, that uh, sex cult that involved oh, Nexium. Mm -hmm. did, did that uh, circle into what you were looking at? I mean, is it all involved with the same stuff or... Um, so some of the circles it involves are actually quite different. So in terms of politicians, it seems to actually involve the Salinas uh, family in Mexican politics, who were quite powerful in the 1990s and still have considerable influence. Uh, they seem to be the most directly involved as far as politicians go. Um, what's interesting, though, um, is that Sarah and Claire Bronfman, who are the Bronfman children associated with this, you know, Edgar Bronfman, for example, he's part of this mega group nexus that I write about in the Epstein series. Uh, they actually went behind his back and got a, put a keyboard logger on his computer and blackmailed his communications without him knowing, uh, which is quite fascinating. And it shows you that these sort of tactics are shown to the family and they have no scruples about using them against uh, their own kin, uh, within, even within these families, but also between families, even though they, they seem to be working together to common ends, which they do, uh, they certainly don't trust one another and, and, and utilize the same blackmail against members of their own family in some cases because they know that it's about power and influence and all they care about is accruing that uh, for themselves. Obviously, not every member of these families is necessarily like that, but obviously some are, um, as the Nexium case shows. You know, this is essentially, you know, these billionaire families, this is like what the mafia does. You know, they uh, spy on members of their own, betray others. It's very cutthroat. No one trusts anybody, even within the same quote-unquote mafia family. And, you know, these, uh, you know, organized crime-linked quote-unquote quote, philanthropist uh, billionaires uh, basically follow the same model. Uh, and it's no, it's no surprise that, you know, these mega group billionaires, I write about almost all of them have uh, direct or indirect ties to, you know, organized crime syndicates and things like that, including Leslie Wexner. So, um, you know, it's quite telling, but yes. Um, so the, the, the Nexium case is also interesting because it involves to an extent um, Roger Stone, uh, the, the well-known political operative who was a protege of Roy Cohn, who's a big focus um, of my book. And he was also involved in this blackmail uh, effort to, that, that took down former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, he was involved in that enterprise um, <laughs> that ended up uh, entrapping him and blackmailing him and then subsequently was also a lobbyist for Nexium. It's just so interesting to see, you know, these people 
fighting each other and all of this. I mean, uh, you know, Hopsicker has been looking at a lot of the, the drug side and, and he's basically declared that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gangster planet. You do That's have- That's a fair assessment. <laughs> Uh, you know, when I look at, uh, been looking at this for a long time, I, I, I say, well, okay, now if I want to do a conspiracy and I want to, uh, you know, have it go beyond my lifetime, you know, how, 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 how do you do something like that? How do you, how do you engineer something like that? These people are involved in what I call, you know, multi-generational milieus, okay? And you have- Yeah, absolutely. You have mm-hmm. pedophilia, which is a multi-generational milieu, because if you're uh, molested as a child, you tend to molest a, a, as an adult. And then you have another multi-generational milieu in, in the occult. We did a, a book by a gentleman uh, based on a um, Belgian state uh, police report. And they had a, uh, an agent, an inf- infiltrator, and he got up to uh, the top uh, there. And basically one thing he found is that there were a series of occult organizations all called the Order which is one of the main nicknames of Skull and Bones along with the Brotherhood mm-hmm. of Death. And what they found was that, you know, that there was an order that was Catholic, there was an order that was Jewish, there was an order that was Protestant, there was an order that was Muslim, there was order that, you know, there's, uh, oh, um, you have um, Pike and there's supposedly these letters that talk about World War One and World War Two. Right, II. Albert Pike, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and, and you know, when you look at uh, Kent Bain's work and especially his, his work on 9-11, you know, he, he brings about how, you know, 9-11 was a ritual that they uh, performed there in the city of, of New York with, with certain buildings being part of uh, the ritual landscape, you know. Right. And, and you look at that and, and you realize that there was some planning involved and there was some, you know, time that it took to get these, uh, you know, plans to uh, fruition. You know, the other thing I've also noticed is that there's been times where Skull and Bones, I mean, their hold on the power of America was, you know, very, very strong. And, you know, but but it ebbs and, and, and flows and, you know, people die right. and blah, 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 blah. So uh, do you get any take on, you know, uh, the organization behind this or whatnot? Or, or <laughs> I mean, and then, you know, when I, when I talk to Ari, you know, I mean, Ari, you know, is very specific. He says, you know, countries do, you know, try and protect themselves or, you know, you do have these sovereign countries that are opposed to each other, you might say, you know, and, and have different agendas and different things. So it's interesting when you look at it. And I don't, what, what are your thoughts when you kind of look at the, the mega, the mega? Right. I don't know if I really want to say like, I know who's behind this or anything, oh, because okay. I think, like you said, there's a lot of competing factions of the global elite. Uh, they, they tend to be, uh, you know, uh, fight over the spoils of war, as it were, and go to war with each other um, over petty or significant things, depending on the group and things like that. And that's happened throughout history. But in the context of like my Epstein book, for example, and a lot of the influence here with this intelligence and organized uh, crime, uh, you know, the syndicate and, and whatnot, uh, there are a couple secret societies that come up uh, more often than not. So, of course, you have a lot of um, involvement of uh, Freemasons, um, admitted Freemasons and, and, and what have you, and also uh, uh, very prominent members of uh, the Order of uh, Benai Brith, uh, Sons of the Covenant, as it's called. 
And allegedly in the 19th century, there was some sort of agreement uh, forged actually by Albert Pike, who you mentioned earlier, um, with B'nai B'rith that they would sort of be uh, work in concert with the US Freemasons um, and all of that. And of course, these are all, um, all very secretive uh, societies with a lot of influential members. Uh, we don't know what goes on at their meetings. So there are people that come out and say things over the years and whatnot. So it can be quite hard uh, to piece together what is true and what isn't true about these groups. But the involvement of B'nai B'rith in the origins and also the continuation um, of groups like the mega group and, and, and their ancestors, as it were, um, you know, is quite significant. So in talking about someone like Roy Cohn, for example, his father led the very influential number one of B'nai B'rith Lodge um, for several years. And a lot of uh, very prominent people in that same sphere um, in the 1920s did so as well. Um, major funders and other members of, of B'nai B'rith would include the Bronfmans and some of these mega group billionaires. Um, and, you know, they're, um, I don't even know what to call them, they're the civil rights organization arm, if you want to call them that, the Anti-Defamation League, which has a very scandalous history in regard to its origin, um, has been used more often than not uh, masquerading as essentially the civil rights organization that claims to stand up for everyone's rights. They've used it um, over, over the years for uh, nefarious purposes, including espionage, um, the, uh, where the Anti-Defamation League was spying on uh, U.S. environmental groups, Arab American anti-racist groups, anti-South African uh, apartheid groups, and sharing that information uh, with the South African apartheid government, their intelligence agency, and also the Mossad, um, among other things, uh, the ADL colluding with the FBI to entrap uh, people uh, with the intention to commit uh, extrajudicial murder and not have these people that were entrapped even uh, given trial uh, back in the 70s and things like that. Um, and also to uh, protect the reputations of members of the National Crime Syndicate, even giving awards uh, to people like Mo Dalitz, who were you know, very well-known mobsters of the period and awarding them for their philanthropy, helping them to launder uh, their lobster rep reputations from the 20s and 30s. Um, and uh, you know, that's an organization directly out of B'nai B'rith uh, and was essentially created uh, to launder the reputation of uh, one of the leaders of a B'nai, uh, B'nai B'rith chapter in Atlanta, Leo Frank, who um, uh, raped and murdered his uh, one of his 13-year-old employees that he had in the sweatshop in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, he was uh, unanimously convicted unanimously by a jury that included several Jewish people, um, but the ADL was later formed and accused his whole trial in which numerous evidence uh, clearly made it uh, very evident that Leo Frank was responsible for this girl's murder. Uh, they blamed it all on anti-Semitism and they uh, you know, have used this to protect certain members um, over, over really over a century, uh, weaponizing anti-Semitism to, to protect uh, some of these members of the Jewish mob. Um, you know, it's, it's quite scandalous. So there are a few, you know, of these secret societies that tend to wield influence and have a sort of nefarious ties. Um, I don't really know how far, you know, the occult side goes in terms of what I'm going to include in the Epstein book, because I know a lot of people will be reading it. And I don't, you know, I only want to have the things I can definitively document in there because I know that there are people uh, that are hoping to pick it apart and discredit uh, the intelligence ties as much as possible. Um, but I'm obviously going to cover groups like B'nai B'rith and things like that. Um, but I can only really speak to, you know, the documented uh, sources there. But there are 
you know, a lot of these um, secret societies just keep popping up. Um, and also the involvement of, of Catholic groups like the Knights of Malta, um, you know, very uh, obvious there. And they allegedly have Freemason ties as well um, and all of this. So, you know, there definitely are these, uh, so you know, so-called secret societies that, that do tend to pop up in this type of research. And, you know, people ignore it and, and don't want to be called, you know, names like a conspiracy theorist for mentioning them. But when they pop up enough, you do have to mention them and see if there's anything there. And so I, I do plan to do that. But, um, you know, I definitely am going to keep it to, to things I can, uh, I can source and document. Well, that's good. So, well, I, I, I think we've given uh, people uh, quite a bit to uh, think about. Any last words? Okay, um, so my final thoughts, I guess um, I'd like to take the time since this is the Trying Day podcast uh, to thank a lot of people who have pre-ordered the book uh, for their patients. I didn't really explain very much that Chris mentioned it, um, why I had to delay the book. Part of this is because um, out of all the countries you may have heard of in terms of their authoritarian COVID-19 responses, including New Zealand, Australia, and Ontario, Canada, Chile's responses, uh, by and large, I would argue the most extreme in the world, probably, at least in, in, in for a government that is considered by the quote unquote international community to be a democracy. It's really quite disturbing um, how things unfolded there. And I ended up having to leave because they made it literally impossible to get childcare. Um, this is because not only did they shut down all daycares um, in March, 2020, uh, but they implemented this plan where if they declare quarantine in your community, uh, which they did in mind pretty much the entire uh, course of COVID, uh, Basically, you can only leave your house twice a week for two hours each, a total of four hours a week. Um, and you have to ask for permission from the police to do so. You have to show those police-derived uh, papers to uh, even be outside of your home, to go inside to a supermarket, uh, to get a to go to the bank, uh, to get gas, to really do anything essential. And you also have to, um, well, well, now at this point, since May, they introduced already their domestic vaccine passport. So now you have to show you're vaccinated to access those essential services if you do not. Um, you will be turned away. And there was actually a case of a woman who was 100 years old being turned away from a supermarket, not allowed to buy food because she didn't have a vaccine passport. And so essentially the situation was that I would have to leave my young daughter, who is three years old, with someone from Monday and pick her up on a Friday. Um, and that was just an, an untenable a situation in addition to the fact that they're, uh, everyone in the country is essentially under house arrest and there's no indication it will get better. Um, a town just uh, 40 minutes north of where I lived, uh, there was a family that was out on the road after curfew, COVID curfew at night. Uh, they were dragged out of their cars by the military, uh, subjected to a fake firing squad mock execution doused in gasoline and had their lives threatened uh, just for being on their car at the wrong time uh and you know the military were uh blocking you from even going to the next town even if it was just 10 minutes away uh just very excessive and authoritarian essentially under the guise of COVID-19 it's a regress to what the Pinochet dictatorship was uh but there hasn't been a blip of it in independent media including a lot of the so-called progressive commentators that commented actively on the 2019 protests against neoliberalism in Chile have had no comment on the extreme authoritarianism of Chile because it's been justified uh, under the guise of a public health emergency. 
but it's definitely not a situation that I could really live in. And also in the same uh, region, they are poised to declare a war on domestic terror against the indigenous population. The region I was living in has the highest percentage of uh, uh, Mapuche uh, Chilean natives. Uh, and so that obviously had a direct impact, impact on or would have on my life. Most of my neighbors were Mapuches and uh, my child's father is, is like uh, one fourth Mapuche. My daughter is one eighth Mapuche. Uh, so it easily could have had implications for me, especially considering the work I do. Um, so, you know, I uh, ended up having to leave in March. And if I hadn't left in March, I wouldn't have been able to leave because even if you are a uh, foreigner, no one is allowed out of Chile anymore. So, um, and it's been like that since April and they've delayed it numerous times. So it's a very uh, tricky situation over there. And of course, having to move across the world uh, with a young child, um, I'm also pregnant um, and you know, all of this stuff uh, and having to set up a new life somewhere uh, was very uh, time consuming and difficult. Uh, so, you know, I just wanna I sort of explain that situation to people that pre-ordered um, and, you know, uh, I've gotten a lot of messages of support saying it's fine and, and all of that. And I just wanna say, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, and, you know, add some context uh, to the delay for people that uh, were not aware. Well, again, uh, thank you very much, Whitney, for spending your time and coming on and, and uh, talking and explaining and uh, onward, onward, <laughs> onward to a better world, a better future for our children. Thank you again. Thank you.